You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley. Not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents... Monster Talk is supported by listeners like you. Find out how you can contribute via Patreon or with reviews at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Your contributions, large or small, make a huge difference. Thanks. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Welcome to 2023. We're going to kick off the new year with some classic Monster Talk topics, and let's hop right into this one. This is an interview with Dr. Stephen Hopp, who has a new series of books coming out, starting with the first volume, Hot Off the Presses, Investigating Pop Psychology, Pseudoscience, Fringe Science, and Controversies. It's a book written by many experts about the chapter topics, including a chapter by Monster Talk's own Dr. Karen Stolzno. I know you all have New Year's resolutions you're trying to get to, so let's get right into the Monster Talk. Welcome to the show. Tonight we're talking with Dr. Stephen Hupp, who's a clinical psychologist and professor of psychology at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. In, uh, in 2015, uh, Dr. Hupp won the Great Teacher Award from the SIUE Alumni Association, and he's published several books, including Pseudoscience in Therapy and Dr. Huckleby's True or Malarkey. That's a fun title. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that second one is a book I made for children to help them try to figure out the difference between what's true and what's malarkey about superhuman abilities. And did I say Dr. Huckleberry correctly or did I say Huckleby? I just want to make sure I didn't mess that up. 
Uh, it is Dr. Huckleberry's Truro Malarkey. Yes. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. Uh, welcome to the show, Stephen. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for having me. And I should just start off thanking you, Karen, for writing one of the excellent chapters in the book. I'm a longtime fan of your show. And uh, which is what got me to reach out to you in the first place. And I'm just so happy that you were a part of this book. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed working on my contribution and we will certainly get to that soon. But we should mention that this book is Investigating Pop Psychology, Pseudoscience, Fringe Science and Controversies. So congratulations on, on it. It's just come out. Yes, it's just come out. Uh, the publisher hasn't even sent me a copy yet, so I haven't—I don't even have a hard copy, but I'm hoping to get fresh it. Fresh off the press. <laughs> yeah, it's fresh off the press for sure. Cool, but we'll put a link to that in the show notes for anyone who wants to pick up a copy. Now, who's the target audience for this? Uh, really two target audiences in mind. So uh, we designed the book around, uh, we, we covered the topics in the same broad order they'd be covered in an intro to psychology class. So we kind of think of like your psychology textbook as being the science of psychology. And then this is like a supplementary book, which is the pseudoscience that's somehow related to psychology regarding each of the major topics of each chapter. But we also think it's a fun book and, and think it, it just fits well as a trade book for anybody to pick up and have a fun time reading. Cool. You've really got some fantastic names in this book. I'm, I'm not referring to myself here. But <laughs> Steve Novella, Jim Alcock, Chris French. I mean, these are all people who are very well known within the skeptics community. And uh, of course, Richard Wiseman is your co-author for the book. Yeah, I mean, we have a star-studded lineup for the book chapters, uh, you amongst the top of the list, Karen. Um, but I was really happy to be able to work with Richard Wiseman. Um, he, he's done a lot of great work related to uh, paranormal investigations, and uh, so it's been really exciting to work with him, but really all the authors over the last really close to two years probably of working on this project. I wanted to mention, too, that you had a dedication to Scott Lilienfeld. And I thought that was really cool. Yeah, really. Scott Lilienfeld was also a clinical psychologist and probably has done the most to write about uh, pseudoscience and psychology. And so he was a very inspirational figure to me uh, and actually helped me get my first book deal uh, in, a, in another series of his in the Great Myths of Psychology series. Um, and uh, we did lose him uh, within the last couple of years. And uh, so uh, just really so thankful for all he did for psychology and me uh, mm -hmm. on a professional level. Yeah, I had no idea there was so much pseudoscience in psychology until I met him and uh, went to some of his talks. I was really shocked. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's got, a, he's got a great YouTube video or you, a video you can find on YouTube, a presentation he gave, and it's titled uh, Why Psychology or Why Pseudoscience Belongs in the Psychology Classroom. And it's about an hour-long presentation, kind of making the case for why it's important to talk about pseudoscience and not just try to limit your discussion to science. Yeah, it was really sad to see. I mean, when he passed, I was actually in correspondence with him really close to then. And, of course, no mention. I mean, he, I guess he kept that pretty close to vest. But I was, it was just really sad to see him pass. Very sad. Yeah, he's a good guy. 
Yeah, uh, a, a big loss for everybody. He was still young, um, but his work definitely continues to live on. Um, you know, he I've been surprised to see he still has articles being published. He still has <laughs> books coming out. There's a book oh. that uh, just came out like right around now that has actually other people put together in honor of him. And his name is even in the subtitle of the book uh, about Scott Lillianfeld's legacy. So uh, he continues to help uh, shape the world and shape people's understandings about pseudoscience and fringe science and controversies in psychology. This is such a, a good field to be discussing this. And we'll, over the course of this, I think we'll get into why. But one of the most important themes of your book is being able to recognize when pseudoscience is masquerading as science. So how does one distinguish between pseudoscience and science? Are there some common tricks that reveal it or some tips for people to spot it? Well, we definitely spend some time in the book just talking about the demarcation problem and that there's not always a clear line between what is science and what is pseudoscience. But when we're talking about pseudoscience, there are some hallmarks uh, that kind of give you a sense that something might be a false claim. And so uh, if somebody is using meaningless jargon or they're promoting ideas or claims that are just not testable claims, there's no way to do a research to support or, or deny it. Uh, that could be another hallmark. Relying on anecdotes too much. Um, you know, everybody values anecdotes to some degree, but we can't put anecdotes over bigger data sets. Um, ex exploiting the placebo effect is another hallmark of pseudoscience. And we discuss a few others in the opening chapter. And there are so many fantastic topics in this book. I don't just don't know where to begin. It would be great to touch upon a few of these. And I think one of my favorites is the the chapter on horoscopes and emotion. And I think that this is going to be very useful in the future because I often have people coming to me and, and asking about horoscopes. Why should we be skeptical about them? Uh, what's dodgy about them? And so I can point people to this book and to this chapter to explain why. Okay, great. Yeah, that is a favorite chapter of mine for a couple of reasons. But one of the reasons is this is one of the chapters that was actually the only chapter that was written by a former student of mine, uh, Zach Lebrat, who is now an assistant professor of uh, school psychology at another, another university. Uh, but when he was here as an undergraduate student, uh, he came to me to chair his honors thesis. And so we did uh, an honors thesis in which we gave college students uh, Barnum statements. Um, and so Barnum statements are really the kind of mechanism that is helping horoscopes work. And I can only assume they've come up on your show. I'm working with another student now on uh, another honors thesis on Barnum statements. And honestly, I'm getting more and more interested in P.T. Barnum, the man. He seems like a very interesting character. Uh, but I guess I should say the, the definition of a Barnum statement is a vague statement. Usually it's positively phrased uh, that pretty much anybody would endorse it as being true for them. Yeah. A great uh, cold reading technique. Yeah. Yeah. Cold reading technique. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, we, we, we've talked about Barnum a few times and the Barnum effect. And I think it's probably going to come up again because, you know, he testified against William Mumbler for the ghost photography stuff that was going on in the spiritualism days. And I, it's just so funny to, it's like 
what do they say? You know, uh, game recognizes game. You know, <laughs> he, he he could spot a hoaxer because he knew how to do hoaxing. That sort of thing. That's uh-huh. so funny. Well, that's what's got me so interested. I think in the skeptical community as a whole. You know, magicians are another great example of that. And Richard Weissman, uh, you know, is a magician in his own right, and even co-authored a book with David Copperfield uh, recently. Uh, and so I, I I do like the idea of of the way magicians have been so actively involved in skepticism and like you said, game recognizes game with Harry Houdini being one of the first great examples. Absolutely. Can we talk about dream interpretation? So, I mean, that's something that's been going on for literally thousands and thousands of years. And and I guess it kind of comes and goes in the popular culture for how much people put into it. But uh, how does psychology treat dream interpretation? Because I know at least it used to be part of Freudian approaches, right? Yeah. You know, a dream interpretation occurred before Freud, but Freud really helped popularize it and formalize it and turned it into a type of therapy in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He wrote the the book, The Interpretation of Dreams. It was published in 1899, but they gave it a 1900 publication date to make it seem more futuristic into the next century. Uh, But the idea of Freud's was that dreams provided this royal road to the unconscious uh, and that you could use your dreams to really identify what your unfulfilled wishes are. And in Freud's estimation, the unfulfilled wishes were almost always sexual in nature. Uh, recently, I had, a, you know, I'm about to say, I want to tell you about my dream, which is like, I think maybe one of the worst things you can hear, have someone say when they're in a conversation. Let me tell you about this dream that I had. It's, it's kind of along the lines of, let me tell you about my favorite role-playing character. It's just, no, no, no. I don't really want to know. But but I actually... This is the one time it's a good thing to talk about. Though. Yeah. <laughs> I had, <laughs> I had, I've had a few uh, sleep paralysis incidents. I've seen shadow people and that sort of thing. And, and I've, you know, I've learned that the, that's pretty normal brain behavior. But recently I had a dream that was so peculiar. And I think we're actually going to talk about this on an upcoming episode, but it felt like a divine message. And when I woke up, I thought, well, now that's funny. I've never had that happen before. But as a skeptic, I just attributed it to that's just my brain having, you know, having a go at me or whatever. I don't, I don't really know what caused it, but it did have a distinctly different quality. And all I could think was if this has happened to my mother, who's much more prone, she has what I call a low threshold of the miraculous. She would have thought that she had actually been, uh, you know, reached out to by an angel. It was that sort of awe inspiring sense of something magical and, and godly was happening. And then I woke up and was like, huh, that was a weird dream. Go have some coffee. But uh, yeah, a lot of people don't do that. They get very caught up in what their dreams are and what it all means. So I think that's would be a good chapter for them to have a look at. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the research on dreams shows that the large majority of dreams are just mundane things, uh, things that happen in your daily life that you're playing out again in your dreams. Uh, but But there are a smaller uh, minority of dreams that can be very unusual, and uh, obviously a lot of weird and strange things can happen in dreams. I've had lots of dreams that just sometimes have blown my mind, like how did I even know certain things? Uh, And so dreams, I think, are just one example of how amazing the human brain can be and how our imaginations can display themselves in, in lots of different ways. 
I, you know, I also want to add when I was, the, I actually started off as an architect major when I went to college and it was my intro to psych class. The professor was talking about lucid dreaming and uh, I got so interested in that. And I kind of have that as an anchor. It's like a moment where I thought, hey, man, this psychology thing is really interesting. And so dreams have, have always been something that are that are interesting to me. But now as a clinical psychologist, you know, I've seen the research. And in terms of using dreams as a form of therapy, there's just not much benefit there. Another chapter that I really enjoyed is the one on alien encounters and memory. And I think that our listeners are going to really enjoy this one too. And the uh, authors write about... Uh, hypnotherapy and sleep paralysis and false memories and the role that these play uh, with a lot of these encounters that people have had and, and some of the more well-known encounters going back to the 1960s and 1970s. So could you tell us a little bit about that chapter? Well, in that one, one of my colleagues here at the university, uh, Thad Meeks and his co-author uh, Arlo Clark Foos uh, wrote that chapter. And uh, you know, one of the things I didn't really realize going into the book was how certain theme themes were going to come up over and over again. And you guys have touched now a few times on this one theme or idea that has come up, which is that of sleep paralysis. Uh, and so and that's really kind of the take home, one of the take home messages of that chapter that a lot of um, people's experiences with alien encounters had, can be explained through sleep paralysis. Um, in which the person is really not uh, kind of going through the different stages of sleep in the typical way, and they're partially awake, uh, but not all the way awake, and they might be hallucinating or even dreaming, or but partially conscious, uh, but not able to control their body. And typically in sleep paralysis, it's it's pretty frightening. Uh, and Karen, you know well because this was a big part of your chapter as well. That's right. Yes, I definitely posit that as one of the uh, explanations for some of the experiences that people have. And um, sorry to keep going here, Blake, but I guess I should. That's a good segue to talk about my chapter, Spectrophilia and Sexuality. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy. UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wag on. We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and or useful for Monster Talk listeners. I Know Dino, the big dinosaur podcast. Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world, but also the world of today. For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents. Climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming. Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution. 
Talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur injuries, <laughs> paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases. A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am flabbergasted that you came and uh, came to me and invited me to participate in this. And uh, I'm curious about why you wanted a chapter on this topic, because it's uh, it's something of interest to a lot of people, but I don't think that many people know about it at all. And we're talking here about claims of sexual encounters with uh, non-human creatures, not animals, but ghosts and demons and aliens and all kinds of other uh, strange creatures like that. Yeah. So the, the story goes like this. I was, you know, working to make each chapter in this book mirror uh, the similar topic in an intro to psych book. So typically, and, and all the intro to psych books follow the same chapter outline our table of contents and so chapter 11 is almost always about sexuality so then i needed some kind of topic about sexuality and it was kind of hard for me to actually figure out what would be the best topic this is one of the ones i struggled with for a while and then um at the same time i also wanted ghosts to be in the book somehow uh but i wasn't sure about how to get ghosts uh in the book and um, and I was just, you know, Google searching. And then I finally came across an article you wrote, Karen, for Skeptical Inquirer, uh, which is one of my favorite magazines. Uh, and uh, that was ultimately what kind of helped these two ideas come together, sexuality and ghost, because you've already written about it. Uh, I think it was nice. called something like Paranormal Paramours. Or, That's I don't right. Know, Exactly. But um, so it was like a light bulb moment, like here's how we can talk about ghosts and sexuality. And it's a lot more intellectual than it first sounds, too, because there's a lot of mythology and folklore uh, surrounding this topic. And certainly today, there's a lot of popular culture that's surrounding these claims and a lot of famous people who claim that they've had experiences of having sex with ghosts or demons. It seems to be strangely common. Yeah, and I loved all the uh, modern examples you gave of real people, some celebrities that have ha- have talked about their experiences with ghosts. Mm-hmm. You know, the chapter also spoke to me because you cite the original Ghostbusters movie, which is one of my all-time favorite movies, and Dan Aykroyd's character has a sexual experience uh, with a ghost in that movie, and so that was I was really happy that was in there. You also cite the movie Ghost uh, with. Mm-hmm. Uh, Demi Moore and Patrick Swayze. And I was a usher in the movie theater when that movie came out. Uh, so I saw the, I saw the ending of that movie like over and over again because I was, cl- you know, waiting to clean the theater. Uh, so that your chapter uh, spoke to me on multiple levels. Oh, thank you. And I think it's interesting that Dan Aykroyd himself claims he's had a sexual encounter with a ghost too. In, in real life, uh, he calls them seduction ghosts. And certainly there are lots of celebrities who believe that they've had experiences and uh, lots of shows like Ghost Adventures where they talk about these kinds of claims. Well, and a lot of people in modern dating have also been ghosted, so it's all related. It's, it's like... <laughs> There's that too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. I was That's waiting weird. for uh, one of those good. Like, <laughs> I, well, I had one I can't include in the show. I just stuck it in the <laughs> 
Oh, good. We can't. Now we got to read the show notes. Hey, I also wanted to say my uh, stepson and uh, my daughter have been doing college visits. And uh, so we went and visited uh, Illinois State University just a couple months ago and took the tour. And on the tour, uh, they point out this building that used to be a library, and now it's something else. But the library used to be haunted, and the building is still haunted. And during the tour, they claim that that building is the inspiration for the haunted library at the beginning of Ghostbusters. That's interesting. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I would be interested to, to know check it out. the basis for that claim. Yeah, that's it. That, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, I have done nothing to fact check it, but I'm just sharing that. <laughs> but as we previously discussed, anecdotes are powerful persuaders. <laughs> <laughs> but I am reporting they're, they're claiming it. and I just That's don't... right. That's right. <laughs> well, you know, we'll a, a, lot of, a lot of podcast listeners are interested in educating themselves. Um, a lot of them are autodidactic and they want to better themselves. And one of the I don't know how it is now, but one of the old uh, advertisers that used to be quite frequent were all these apps for brain training. And I noticed there's a chapter on brain training. So I, I know you don't want to spoil it, but what's the skinny on brain training? Well, uh, so Indre Viscontis and her co-author wrote that chapter. Um, I'm a big fan of hers as well and her Inquiring Minds podcast. She's a cognitive neuroscientist. Um, and uh, it's a complicated chapter, Um and it's a chapter that, that I guess the take home message is there, there's a nugget of truth. I mean, there's definitely some value in doing any activity for your brain, even playing games uh, or just doing any type of activity can be good for you in general. Um, for example, I play Wordle every day and my dad and I and my wife all share our Wordle results. And, uh, you know, it's good to exercise mm -hmm. your, your brain in that way. But the problem with a lot of products or websites or apps is they really kind of oversell the benefits of doing their specific types of exercises. Um, and one way they do that is um, that, you know, you might do an exercise that helps your memory your, your memory in a certain type of task, but it doesn't necessarily generalize to make you a smarter person, even though it's often advertised as doing such. Yeah, it seems like it might train you at being better at that game, but will yes. that translate to higher cognitive skill or, uh, yeah. or you know, will it uh, prevent cognitive decline, which is always something, that, you know, in, in, as my parents age out, you know, it's, uh, you know, what can we do to help keep them, you know, sort of mentally active? And, you know, it's hard when people get into a rut to get them to try new stuff. So, you know, I guess at this point, anything's probably a good idea. Yeah. yeah, I mean, doing anything can be good. Um, but a, a point made in the chapter is, you know, you might get more benefits just from doing daily exercise and the positive effect that has on your brain as compared to doing like specific brain training exercises. But, you know, if you're doing brain training exercises and they're fun, you know, go for it. It's not really going to hurt you. But um it's, it's good to do other things that are good for your brain, like healthy diet, exercise, and, and daily or regular social interaction. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think people are just always looking for quick fixes with these kinds of things. Absolutely. Yep. And I think this leads in nicely to, to talking about Steve Novella's chapter on alternative medicine and health. It's another great chapter and such an important topic when it comes to skepticism because it's just one of these areas where people can – truly get into a, a lot of trouble 
if they pursue things like homeopathy and natural medicine, holistic medicine. Uh, so I think he gives a really great overview on this topic, and it's, it's very important for people to read. Yeah, I mean, I was so happy when I reached out to uh, Steve Novella and he agreed to write the chapter. Uh, you know, I'm often surprised and just so delighted uh, when people agree. Uh, and it was a really good chapter. And, um, you know, he really kind of opens by just talking about the way alternative medicine has kind of shifted its branding. You know, what once we called quackery, quackery then became alternative medicine, then evolved into complementary medicine then became complementary and alternative medicine, then became integrative medicine. And then there's spinoffs on that that are natural medicine or holistic medicine or ancient medicine. And he goes through the whole chapter and really kind of talks about problems with all of these different iterations of the same basic idea. And, you know, the, the basic idea is that it is possible for some specific alternative medicines to gain research support. But once they do gain research support, we don't call them alternative medicines anymore. We just call them medicine. <laughs> exactly. Makes sense, yep. <laughs> the thing about alt-med, too, is it's it's one of those fields of skeptical inquiry where, you know, as much as we love to do monsters, we probably don't save lives the way they do <laughs> or potentially save people thousands and thousands of dollars. But you use the same skills, like the same ways of evaluating what's good evidence, what's bad evidence, critical thinking, you know, spot the fallacies, all those sort of things can be really helpful. It's the same toolbox, you know, whether you're looking for yeah. Bigfoot or trying to figure out what's real scientific evidence-based medicine. I, I think that's fascinating that these these skills do transfer pretty easily. So I like that. And we have Bigfoot, so. Well, we do have Bigfoot, so, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not – I think there's plenty of room for uh, skeptical approaches to all of, of these sort of things. And I, I don't – you know, I, I'm happy being a Bigfoot skeptic, but I appreciate the work that people do in, in this sort of inquiry for sure totally but look at all these topics we've talked about look and you've got many more chapters in the book with all these different claims and these different topics how did you figure what to leave in and what to leave out well um i really just tried to pick what would fit best with those core concepts covered in an intro to psych class and there is a lot that was left out, uh, but the good news is this is going to be about a 10-book series. So we're we're currently working on other books in the wow. series. So all the things that got left out will find their way into other books. Ambitious. Indeed. 10 books. <laughs> yeah, go, go big or go home, I figure. You know, once, <laughs> once you get uh, Richard Weissman and all these other uh, amazing contributors on this what is now the flagship book of the series, then we might as well blow it up to something bigger. Yeah, totally. So Steve, what would be some typical tactics that are used to make people believe pseudoscience is actually science? Uh, we had a social psychologist named Anthony Pratt-Canis uh, write a chapter. It's chapter 13, and he titled it Selling Flim Flam. So he kind of uses the the Randy term flim flam there and he talks about different social influences that are used from a social psychologist perspective um and so you know some of the examples he says that that when people are trying to sell you on flim flam 
they might use something like a tailored pitch, which means they learn something about you and kind of turn that around to get you interested. Uh, so if they learn you had military service, they might claim that they were also in the military. Um, they also use tactics like social consensus. You know, if, if you think everybody else wants something, then it makes you want it too. My wife and I were just in New York and there was a big line for something we didn't even know what and we said gosh we better go get in that line uh and it turned out to be for a great restaurant and we were really happy we did but once you see everybody else wants something it, it makes you want it too and so when people are selling flim flam sometimes they'll fake it and make it seem like everybody else wants it or other times they might take advantage of the fact that other people do want it um another example of uh, social influences is to try to get you to start persuading yourself and, and they might get you to kind of come up with reasons why the thing they're selling might work and those are just some of the many that anthony shared in his chapter fantastic well this is a little bit out of the scope of the book but within the field i i've been really curious about before COVID, there was a whole lot of discussion about the replicability crisis in social psychology and social sciences. And I was curious because after COVID came, I stopped seeing all that stories. Everything became about COVID or politics. And I just, I'm still very concerned about what's the future. How is psychology going to fix this, address this and, and what's happening in the field? Can, can it, are you comfortable talking about that at all? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a big part of the whole field, uh, especially social psychology, but definitely not just limited to social psychology. Um, and I would say replication studies have a lot more respect for this reason than they used to. And so, you know, partly what you're alluding to is some of the classic findings in social psychology that were believed to be true by everybody because um, they've just been findings that have been around for a long time. People lately were having a hard time replicating them. Um, and so that's led to people arguing for the need for more replication. Uh, I think one really good example of that is by Richard Wiseman, um, Christopher French, Stuart Ritchie, all tried to replicate some of Daryl Bim's ESP research um, that had been published in prominent journals. And all three of them separately tried to do a replication and all three of them failed to replicate. And then they tried to publish their they put all three of their studies into one big failed replication article uh, and couldn't get journals to publish it because those journals didn't want to publish the failed replications. Really? They did find a way to, to make it available. Good. So it is still a challenge, uh, but I think replication research is, is definitely getting more respect now. Yeah, it, it's weird how much Bim's paper uh, where he was positing that, what was it, if uh, you had an increased uh, sexual uh, sort of state of arousal, you would be more likely to be able to predict the future. I, it, was, it was a strange study, and mm -hmm. I, the fact that his paper was published affirming it really seemed to be a big part of that sort of uh, replicability crisis. Whoa, 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 what's going on? How could this possibly be true? By what mechanism could this be true? So, you know, and if it turned out that everybody could replicate it, well, that would also be fascinating. But that's not, I think, the case. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, uh, I'm not an expert in ESP, and I learned a lot, actually, from editing this book. And, um, you know, one of the things I learned was that some of the early – people that were interested in truly studying ESP uh, actually also 
at the same time were exposing psychic mediums. So Henry Sidgwick is known for being like an early uh, person that that tried to study ESP, but at the same time he exposed psychics. And mm -hmm. so um, it's just another example of what you were talking about earlier uh, in terms of you know how the tactics work, and so you can see when other people are doing them. Yeah, that that whole period of time, the the uh, around the, that was when Scientific America was also trying to prove or test those ideas. Is it is a really really interesting period of of, of history. I, I kept I want to say American. It's really uh, you know just the the history of the scientific inquiry, but uh, a lot of it was playing out. Here. Some of it was in in England. Uh, and I think some in Italy, but a lot of it was playing out right here in the in the states. It was really, really fascinating. Yeah, I'm just so fascinated with that period. Um, you know, that's around when P.T. Barnum was doing his thing, and uh, it's just really, really interesting to me. You know, speaking of, of P.T. Barnum, uh, one of the things I've learned recently is is he distinguished between the term humbug and the term hoax. And uh, so to him, it was like wrong to do a hoax, but it was OK to do a humbug, which was like, you know, kind of a tongue in cheek, like, hey, you probably know this is fake, but I'm going to just present it like it's real anyway. Yeah, <laughs> we need to bring that word back then. Humbug. Yeah, yeah well, I think so. This is the time of year when I always bring it back. <laughs> I think it's so identified with this time of year, uh, but um, it definitely had a different meaning previously. That's fantastic. That's so interesting. <laughs> yeah, this is fun stuff. And Steve, we want to thank you for coming on the show because this is just such an interesting topic and all of our listeners need to grab a copy of your new book. And we've just got one final question for you. What's your favorite monster? Well, I told you I'm a fan of the show, so I knew the question was coming and I put some thought into it. And um, the thing that came to mind for me was the movie The Shining. And Danny, the five-year-old boy who had psychic powers called The Shining, who received visions from his imaginary friend, or at least his parents thought it was his imaginary friend, who actually turned out to be a supernatural entity called Tony that he spoke to, like, kind of through his index finger, uh, which represented him talking to his so-called imaginary friend. And so I think Tony is my favorite monster because he represents – uh, imaginary friends that a lot of kids have most, the majority of kids have either a personified object, like a stuffed animal they treat that is real or an invisible friend. Um, about 65% of kids have some type of imaginary friends, but it, it actually freaks parents out sometimes when their kids have imaginary friends. And the movie, the shining is probably partly to blame for why parents would get freaked out because it is really creepy the way Danny has an imaginary friend. So so to me, that, that imaginary friend of his, Tony, represents all kids' imaginations. And to me, the human imagination is is such a amazing thing and a double-edged sword because it it has caused us to imagine things like Bigfoot and alien abductions and demons and ghosts, um, which has some negative side effects at times, although positive side effects at other times. But the other amazing thing about the human imagination is is we can imagine things that are impossible. And uh, to plug one of Richard Weissman's other books, uh, Shoot for the Moon, the the ability to imagine what's impossible, the people imagined one day that they could land on the moon, and that seemed impossible. But people were able to push past that with their imagination. And uh, that's the exciting thing about the human brain. And so there's there's good and bad that comes with our imagination. 
And so that's why I picked Tony. Nice. Wow. That is a fantastic answer. And, and you're making me realize my son's seven. And he did have a, an imaginary friend until quite recently because he's just stopped talking about this friend. Did they have a falling out? <laughs> maybe he ghosted him yeah <laughs> uh, but yeah it is a perfectly normal thing that when you have conversations recounted to you and uh just creepy things that that uh apparently they've discussed uh it, it absolutely freaks out parents i think if they're they're not familiar with this and mm-hmm. um, it, it can be scary at first yeah. yeah, absolutely, and that's that's why I like parents to know that it is very common for kids to have imaginary friends. For sure. I, I, I love the idea of, of, of Tony. Uh, it, it reminds me of, of the fact that the other thing is that your imagination can run wild. And even if you're a very, very skeptical person, if you get uh, what some people call it, the heebie-jeebies, that, that sense that something's amiss, like whatever's going on in your brain at that point, it doesn't really matter how rational you are, you know, that sensation, something's in the house, something's following you up the stairs, you know, that it's, it's hard to shake. And it's just amazing. Oh, yeah. Your brain can turn enemy on you. It's really wild. Oh yeah. Even if you just know it's a feeling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Well, psychology is oh, fascinating. And uh, thank you for coming to talk to us about this particular aspect. Well, thank you guys so much. You know, it's, it's really uh, fun to have a, have one of my favorite podcasts have me on it so you know it's uh it really was great to get a chat with you guys and uh i just appreciate all that you guys do for the skeptical community well thank you oh, thank you and we'll have to have you back on for the other nine books and you know all right, i, I think this will be our first podcast of 2023 okay all great right. so it'll be a great That's way to kick the year off so cool great. Well, happy, happy new year, year to everyone. yeah exactly happy yeah. new year happy holidays <laughs> and, yeah happy 2023 Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with Dr. Stephen Hupp, who, along with Dr. Richard Wiseman, put together a new book, Investigating Pop Psychology. A link to that's in our show notes, and it's a surprisingly easy-to-read book with some really interesting aspects on how we study the human mind. Check out our Monster Talk merchandise at monstertalk.org forward slash store, where you can find a variety of cool products to show that you're a next-level monster enthusiast. Monster Talk's a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, home of such shows as Food with Mark Bittman, Big Picture Science, and Fork in the Road. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. If you're a Patreon subscriber, be sure you're listening to the custom URL, which lets you automatically download the commercial-free version of the show each week. Just log into patreon.com. On the left-hand side of the screen, you'll see your memberships. Find Monster Talk in that list and click on it. On the right-hand side of the screen, you'll see links for home, community, about, and membership. Click on the membership link and scroll down just a little bit and you'll find a special, unique URL that you can put into your podcast software so that every week you'll get the new commercial-free and often extended episodes of our show. I'm including these instructions here because it recently came to my attention that quite a few of you who are supporting the show didn't know about this feature. I hope this helps you kick off 2023 and have a better podcast listening experience. Monster Talk's theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thank you for listening, and from Monster Talk, we wish you a happy, prosperous, and healthy 2023.
This has been a Monster House presentation. Uh, are you habitually using drugs, stimulants, alcohol? No. No, no, just asking. Are you, Alice, menstruating right now? What has that got to do with it? Back off, man. I'm a scientist.